Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. BZ, you are Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. It's October. It's the best month for me. My favorite month. Part of that's Halloween and all that goes with it. And so we'll be, you know, covering lots of Halloween stuff and witch stuff and paranormal stuff. And we're going to kick that off tonight. We have with us, we have a guest who's come all the way in here, Michael Cormier, who is an author and Writer, and he's written a play and put together a play called Saltonstall. Saltonstall, that's right, like the Saltonstall building down there in Government Center. Saltonstall, one man's stand against Salem witch trials. And usually I don't solicit calls, but I guess I will this time because I feel like you'd you might have some good calls. A lot of you know some stuff about the witch trials. So you're welcome to call at 617-254-1030. Now, we're going to talk about the play. We're going to talk about the witch trials themselves and kind of weave that together. And first, let's introduce Michael Cormier. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. It's great to actually have you come in. appreciate it. You came from Atkinson, New Hampshire, right? Atkinson, New Hampshire. Now, that's where? Where is that? It's right over the line from Haverhill. It's right. near Plastow, in between Plastow okay. and Salem, yeah. And, it's, and the ride was smooth? Nice, oh, yeah. Smooth yeah. ride? Yeah, I love this commute tonight. Well, I guess first I'd ask you how you became so very interested in not only the witch trials, but this person's salt install, because putting a play together is a huge endeavor. You must really love this guy in order to you know have gone through so much yeah, well, part of it was uh, my love for the the figure of Nathaniel Saltonstall, and the other part was my ignorance of what it takes to put a play together. Uh, I think if I'd known ahead of time, I would have if thought you know, twice about doing it that way. So but. you think if you knew if you now what you know if you'd known what it was going to be like, you wouldn't have gone ahead to do I it. I would have at least I would have thought twice about it. I, I, when I first thought about doing something. With this particular uh, historical figure, I was thinking of doing either a novel or a play, but I'd never written a stage play before, so it was a brand new thing to me, and I really didn't know what it involved. So I want to make sure you all know that you can go to this play and that it's going to be excellent, and it has some high-end people in it, and it's at the 
the Larkham Theater Larkham, in Beverly. Larkham Theater, which has been redone. Very nice. Yes, yes. And it's large, 560 seats. Yes. It's a beautiful theater. And I um, want to make sure that during the course of this hour, we repeat where and when the play is. So when is the play? The play runs from October 17 to October 27. And there are uh, six evening performances and four matinee performances. So those of you who can't get out at night, uh, there are four performances during the day, 2.30 in the afternoon. So this is the real deal. You you say you did a workshop version of it last year. Yes. And this is the full-on version. And you have some fancy actors and director. You have the, the well, di- we do. Uh, we First of all, we have the director is Miriam Sear. Miriam is a, a, a fantastic actress and uh, director. She is now directing plays. Uh, she is uh, has her her uh, uh, resume includes um, uh, the Royal National Theatre over in London. She's appeared on stage in uh, in in New York. Uh, she has been in several movies uh, in principal roles, and uh, she even starred op- opposite Al Pacino at one time on stage. Uh, so she has a real long history of, uh, of a, a number of things besides acting. Uh, she's now directing. Now, we also have Ben Evett, who is a local Boston stage actor. Ben has uh, won all sorts of awards uh, for his acting. He is well, well respected around here. Uh, and we have Hal Scardino, who is um, a veteran actor who... Uh, started out as a child actor. In fact, he played in a movie called The Indian in the Cupboard uh, back about 25 years ago, or 20, 25 years ago. Um, he starred in that, and uh, he's been in several major uh, movies, such as uh, Marvin's Room with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and we have rehearsals, uh, lots and lots of rehearsals. This serious business. How, yes. how long have you been rehearsing this? We've been rehearsing this. Well, some of the actors are coming back from last year's production. Last year's was a, uh, a black box production, a workshop production. And uh, some of them were in that. Uh, some of the newer actors are, are just learning their roles. Uh, we started this month. And uh, they will be rehearsing about six days a week all the way up until the production starts. You're not the director. You have a director you trust. But do you still go to all these rehearsals and, and make sure that it it's consistent with your vision. I go to all the rehearsals because the director makes me go to all the rehearsals. Why does she <laughs> want you to go? Uh, Miriam likes me to be there because we both like to tweak the script a little bit here and there. There's a word that doesn't quite fit. Uh, there's a, a, a different kind of vision of how this should be delivered. She likes me to be right there to help uh, uh, address those issues. All right. You know, I should give a, bro- a broad stroke version of what this is about. It's about one of the judges in the Salem Witch Trial who did not go along with all that and was kind of a holdout. We'll get into more details on that later. Now, you'd written books, novels, etc. You'd never written a play, and you explained to me before the program why that is so difficult. I'll give the, again, broad strokes. It's, it's difficult because when you are writing it, you don't know what kind of assets you'll have available at the time. And then depending on what assets, like the size of the theater, the size of the budget, the the props, the actors, you have to redo it 
to fit with what you have. Exactly. Uh, part of the thing was that uh, I decided that when I decided to do a stage play, I thought it was going to be a lot like a screenplay um, and maybe even a little bit like a novel. Uh, I found out very differently. With a stage play, you have to condense a lot of material into a very short amount of time and a very sh small amount of space. And so really a small amount of dialogue. Uh, yes, exactly. The dialogue has to work. Every bit of it has to work. There's nothing superfluous in a, uh, in a, in a stage play, uh, which I found out the hard way. Um, and you, you're, you're working with a very small amount of space. You don't have the whole world as your backdrop as you can in, in a movie. Uh, you have to make this work on a stage. So you have to write the play such that the action that takes place can take place. Things can happen on that stage that get across the ideas that you're trying to convey. I want to find out more about the Salem Witch Trials because you're pretty clearly an expert on that. So 1692, and there had been Salem Witch, there had been witch trials in Europe, but they were sort of faded out now. But for one year, approximately, maybe 18 months, it became a real thing here. Why? Oh, why did that pop up? There are so many reasons, and, and, and really it's been uh, discussed and it's been observed and it's been uh, uh, analyzed for three, hundred, three, and, a, three and a quarter, quarter centuries. Uh, and still nobody has come up with a definitive answer as to what exactly set this whole thing off, but there are many theories about things that contributed to it. Um, so if you'd like me to get into some oh, of those yeah. theories. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, the Puritans were a, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a superstitious people. Uh, they really believed that the devil was running amok looking for people to turn to his side. And they also believed very strongly in witches and witchcraft and magic. And um, so the, the stage in that regard was set for something to happen if it was going to. And what occurred is that uh, several girls started acting, acting strangely in the winter of 1691 to 92. And when, they, when, a, when, when a physician came to examine them, he said, I can't find anything wrong with them physically, so it, it must be some kind of evil. I think that they're possessed. Um, what had happened... Prior to that is that these girls had been doing these little magic tricks with a, uh, a slave by the name of Tituba, who was the uh, slave owned by Samuel Paris, Reverend Samuel Paris, in Salem Village, which is today Danvers. So uh, they put all that together and decided that it was witchcraft going on. And were these girls all in the same family? One of them was Betty Paris. She was nine years old. She was the daughter of... Reverend Paris, and the other main one was Abigail Williams, who was 11 years old, who was is believed to have been a niece of Reverend Paris. And oh. then their friends got involved as well. So it's my understanding that at the time, things were very fractious, and there were, there were lots of property disputes and things of that nature. Right. And so this charges of witchcraft were a way to get their land from them, but how did the, the, the girls and the magic tricks morph into the, the 
their witches were going to get their land? That's the big $64,000 question. Everybody's been trying to figure out for 300 years. And what it comes down to, and what I think occurred, is that you had a, a very, as I said, a very superstitious society that was mainly um, the, for lack of a better word, the peasantry of the villages, meaning the, the, the farmers and the, the small business people who uh, were prone to this sort of superstition. And then you had this emerging merchant class that uh, had produced the ministers and the judges and so on and so forth. And what you had is this large population of people who believed, and then you had this smaller population of elites who pushed the agenda. Now, exactly how they made that happen is that's, that's where it gets a little cloudy. Um, so there's the first instance. Were the behaviors of the girls, A, that super bizarre, like maybe behavior in The Exorcist with the head spin around? Were there, were there really things beyond what normal diseases or people could do? And was it, was it documented in any way? Yes, I mean, there, there, yeah, there, there are contemporary accounts of uh, what had gone on, and it's pretty accepted that what the girls were doing. I don't think there were any spinning heads and, and no pea soup coming out, but there were a lot of uh, very strange convulsions they would go into, and they would uh, twist around and, and, and twist their, their arms behind their back, their legs, and and basically just go into convulsions. Well, that is pretty weird. What It was. It was very What was weird. going on? Were they doing it on purpose? Um, that's the question. And uh, my, my theory to is get that, attention? My theory is that they were trying to get attention. And I think what happened is it started out with something small and then became just took off. And they realized, now you got to keep in mind that these young girls really had no outlet for uh, being creative, uh, getting attention, being paid attention to. Uh, so... Along comes this opportunity, and everybody's paying attention to them, and they just kind of took it from there, and it snowballed. There were th there was a theory that bread that they were eating had sprouted and caused some sort of it had a drug in it as a result of and that's been debunked. Yeah, I think uh, it had like an LSD think, type of thing in it. Yeah, I think pretty much uh, that came out in a book uh, some years ago, and I think most historians kind of uh, uh, look at it and say, "Yeah, you know, that's a nice theory, but I don't think so." And here's why: what the, what what was talked about is something called I think it's ergot, e, okay. e r g o t. It's a uh, a mold that grows on rye wheat. Yeah, if it's not stored in the proper conditions, so you eat that and you hallucinate. It's actually a hallucinogen. And the theory was that maybe that's what happened and that's what got them thinking these things. Um, but it doesn't explain why so many people uh, within the community afterwards began accusing others. And that's where it gets really sticky. Okay. Can you talk about some of the actual personalities and their, their ordeal? Okay. Some uh, of the witches that were uh, accused and oh, sure. what they went through? Absolutely. Um, first of all, there is uh, probably one of the more interesting ones is Bridget Bishop. She's the first one to be tried, uh, and 
her trial takes place in my place, Salton. By the way, Salton Stall's trial is is the title. It's um, she was this interesting person who was kind of a loud mouth and boisterous and and angry, and that was really frowned upon for women of the day. So she's kind of a uh, a prototype of the kind of person that would be accused of witchcraft. Well, she was accused by her neighbors of doing things like afflicting uh, their, uh, one of them said she afflicted the infant and the infant died. Uh, another one said that uh, she uh, bewitched their, their pig and the pig was jumping up, <coughs> climbing the walls and doing backflips and things like that, all sorts of outlandish things. Um, so Bridget Bishop is interesting in the sense that she really created the the, the, the sort of prototype of who yeah. was going to be accused and who was going to get convicted later on. Um, we've all heard of Rebecca Nurse. Anybody who knows about the Salem Witch Trials knows of Rebecca Nurse, who was a very, very pious woman. She was about 70 years old. She was a grandmother. She was well thought of in the community, always went to church. She was just a, a pillar of society. She got accused. And she was accused mainly, I think, because the Putnam family of Salem Village, uh, again, that's Danvers today, um, didn't like her. There were land disputes going on. Um, So she was convicted, and actually she was found not guilty at a trial. And then the judges made the jury go back and deliberate again because they wanted a conviction. And this time they came back with a conviction. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's how it went back then. Uh, there's also Giles Corey. He's another really interesting one. Um, and he's famous for the fact that he was the only accused that was pressed to death. Now, what happened with Giles Corey is that he refused to plead either innocent or guilty. Because if you pled, then they could put you on trial. If they put you on trial and you were convicted, then they could take your land. So Giles Corey decided he's, he was an elderly man. He had, he had a family. He had you know, children that he wanted to leave his property to. He decided, I'm not even going to enter a plea. And he refused. It didn't work out very well for him, though. No. It, it did not, but it worked out well for his family because— They got to keep the land. They got to keep the land. What happened is they, they pressed him to death. They put a board over him and then started piling rocks. And they did this for three days, trying to get him to either confess or enter a plea. And every time that they added more weight to it, he would just, they'd say, are you ready to confess? He'd say, more weight. And that's the only that's thing he would the, say, more that's weight. That's the myth anyway. That's the myth. That, that's, that's the myth. But that's, yeah, I think might have, he, he might have just said, uh. Yeah. I think, I think that at the, at the very end, that's about what he was able to do. But, I mean, for three days they did this. So if you just didn't like your neighbor, we could say they were acting like a witch. Or if you didn't like your neighbor and you wanted their land. You could say they're acting like a witch, but who would get the land that was taken from a convicted witch? Who got the land? The town or the land? The, the land went to the it went to the colony. Uh, from what I understand, it went to the colony. I don't know the ins and outs of that uh, specifically, but I believe it went to the colony, and then somebody could purchase it. So did that so give judges a motivation to find them guilty if they went to the colony? Did they get a cut? Did they benefit in any way? These judges? No, no, they did not. Huh. They did not. I don't think that had anything to do with what the judges were up to and why they were so gung-ho on, on convicting these witches. 
we I want to get into the trial a little bit, but before we do, what was the ordeal of someone charged? How how long would a trial take? How, what would they have to go through? And if were, were there certain tests made on them to see if they were actual witches? And if they were deemed to be a witch, what happened to them? Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Well, yeah, it, they uh, it started with an examination. Once somebody was accused, uh, they were arrested and brought before um, a magistrate or a pair of magistrates. And uh, two of them were John Hawthorne and uh, Jonathan Corwin. So they would come out and they would set up a, uh, uh, an examination. And when I say an examination, it wasn't an exam a physical examination, but it was like a probable cause hearing. And they would have them come in and uh, ask some questions. And Do you have any idea what kind of questions they would ask? Oh, basically they would accuse them. Okay. So it'd be, Bradley J., you are a witch. Why are you a witch? When did you become a witch? Who have you been okay. consorting with? And uh, so that, it went on like that. Of course, How long have you known the devil? Right, right, right. And who else is involved in all of this? So, of course, most of the people would deny any knowledge of the devil or any, you know, uh, having done anything wrong. And they wouldn't believe them. And uh, uh, if they did start to believe them, there were always some witnesses present who were usually willing to give stories about what they had done to them. And they were outlandish stories. We, we mentioned a couple of them earlier. But one of the problems was that there were several girls, aside from Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, who were willing to come to court and testify and also fall into their antics right there in the courtroom. In other words go into their convulsions and say that, you know, that she's afflicting me and she's pinching me. Her spirit is... So a, an accuser would go in and writhe in pain. Yes. And point to the accused witch and say, she's making me do this right now. Oh, yeah, and they'd pull right out pins and say, she just stuck a pin in me. How, how'd she do that? She's over there. Well, she sent her spirit over to do it. Uh, th those sorts of things. So I thought that the, the English had a system of justice that was fairly just. And that we kind of inherited or got the system of justice. This doesn't seem consistent with that at all. It wasn't. This was. This is. This was concocted by. This is the concocted by the theocracy that had left England to be free to be that theocracy. Only partly because the Puritans took their cue from the courts that had been established over in Europe previously. So a lot of what they did in these trials, they got from what happened over in Europe. And the trials in Europe, in England, back in, you know, back in, uh, uh, before the Puritans ever came over here to the New World, those trials were brutal. I mean, worse than what the Puritans did. I mean, there was dunking of witches. They dunked them. We didn't the, do the dunking here? We didn't do the dunking here, no. Can you they explain would, the dunking? Had, we, they would, uh, they would take the witch and basically uh, tie her up and throw her in the water, and if she floated, she was innocent. If she didn't, then she was a witch or something to that effect. Well, of course, they drowned, but at least you would know that they, they, they drowned in God's good graces because they weren't a witch. Ah. So, and, and, of course, there was uh, the burning at the stake of in a lot Europe, of witches over here. in Europe. That was much, much earlier probably back in the uh, the 16th century, probably 100 years earlier. But they, some of the ways that they uh, uh, um, 
the tests that they used on them, such as the dunking, were just brutal, and you couldn't beat it. And so, here, the method of exterminating the witch was hanging. Yeah, by, uh, by comparison, what they did with the witches in the conduct of the trials and in what they did with them when they were found guilty was uh, pretty tame compared to what happened. Yeah, you there. only got hung. You only got hung, yeah. They only hanged them. They, they never, they, they were, there were never any burnings in, in America. And they did not have gallows, and they didn't put you on a horse and slap the horse's buttocks? No, they didn't they, do that. To explain except how in they did it. They, um, they would walk the, the accused, they, they walked the, the convicted witch up a ladder that was set against a tree, and on the tree branch they've got the, uh, the rope, which had a kind of a slip knot rather than a noose, and they put the uh, uh, put the rope around the neck, and then they would either push them off the ladder or they'd yank the ladder away. And more often than not, the person's neck didn't break, so they would just uh, strangle. Except for Giles Corey, was it Corey? He was the only one pressed to death. He was pressed to death, and that had nothing to do with him being convicted. It had to do with them trying to force him into either a confession or a plea of guilty or not guilty. Okay. And now, let's try to get the the play in the Sultanstall. Uh, is it Nathaniel Sultanstall? That's correct. And what the play is about. There was one judge that didn't really go along with that. And can you explain how you, you know, made an entire play out of that? Well, it wasn't easy because everything that's written in the history books basically uh, is about a, a paragraph long. Okay. About Nathaniel Saltonstall. But every history book mentions him and mentions him in some kind of appraising, a you know, a, pr a praise of him. So uh, what I decided to do was to figure out everything I could about the man. And I went out and I did literally hundreds of hours of, of research on him, his times, the people that surrounded him. What I found out is that Nathaniel Saltonstall was a well-to-do um, Puritan of very good standing in society. He was on the governor's council. He was also the local magistrate in Haverhill. He was a grandson of uh, Sir Richard Saltonstall, who came over to, uh, to, to the, the New World and helped establish the colony. Um, but he was also somebody who was uh, kind of removed from the politics down in Salem and Boston because Haverhill was right against the the frontier in that time. Haverhill was considered as far as you could go without being in the frontier. Um, and what I discovered that was that he was one of nine judges appointed on May 27, 1692. He was appointed as one of the judges who would sit on the court of Oyer and Terminer, which was the court established to hear the witch trials. Um, five judges would sit on each panel. There would be Judge William Stoughton, who was the chief justice, and four other judges. Well, they had the trial of Bridget Bishop on June 2nd, 1692. And the transcript doesn't exist. These are the sorts of things that I was up against to try to figure everything out. The transcript of the trial doesn't exist. So, Do any trial transcripts exist? Not, not to my knowledge. I think it's been rumored that they may have burned in a fire that took place in, 
in, in a building, a historic building back in the 1800s. So there was no transcript to go by, but Cotton Mather wrote about her trial later on that year. Um, so much of the information I got was from that. And uh, he, he would have sat through that first trial and only that trial because he quit within a week of the trial's end. She was convicted and sentenced to hang, and she was hanged on June 10th, eight days later. How long would one of these trials take? These trials, basically one day. And then how long after that before you were hung? Um, Next in, day? Uh, in, in, within a couple of weeks, sometime. It, with Bridget Bishop, it was within eight days. Um, the others, it took a few weeks, two or three weeks. Tough times. Very now, tough. how do you, and here's the big trick for you, how did you translate this to a play? Give me a sense of what the, the scenes are like in the play. How, how, does it, how is it unfurled, rolled out in the play? Sure. Um, first of all, you have to understand the play is, is a play about a family. It's about the Salt and Stall family. It's about Nathaniel and his family trying to figure out how they were going to weather the storm, but how are they going to do this while doing the right thing at the same time? Because everybody was running for cover then and drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will. Um, and when they weren't drinking the Kool-Aid, they were saying they were drinking the Kool-Aid. They just went along with the program. The Salt and Stall family didn't really do that. Um, and in the play, we follow Nathaniel from his time in Haverhill, where he is this country judge hearing small claim action sort of things. And uh, he gets noticed that he's going to Salem. Uh, so in Act 1, he receives notice from Governor Phipps that he is to report to Salem at once. It's roughly May 30th of 1692, and he's got to be in town in Salem within a couple of days. So he has no time to prepare for the first trial, which takes place on June 2nd. Um, and the trial takes place, the Bridget Bishop trial does take place in Act 1. Um, and, and it has to move right along because you have to, so much to cover in a short period of time. The, the play takes place within two weeks' time. Okay. And there's a lot to get in there because this was a very, very crucial part of the whole Salem Witch Scare. This two-week period was crucial because this is a time during which they decided how the trials were going to be conducted and whether spectral evidence was going to be admitted. What's that? Spectral evidence meaning uh, whether uh, testimony about spirits oh, yeah. and, and things of that nature, uh, afflicting the girls and, and, and you know things of that nature, things that only the afflicted could see, but the rest of the people couldn't. They had to decide whether that kind of evidence was going to go in. So um, it was a very crucial period. What I did is I took Nathaniel and I imagined what it was like for him to go from that environment in Haverhill where he's the king of his little fiefdom and he's a fair judge and he gets plunked down in Salem thinking that he's going to be a fair judge again, and he gets sucked up into where everybody's nuts for for the year, and they're sucking him right up into it, and uh, he has to make a decision what he's going to do, whether he's going to go along with everybody who is part of his class, meaning you know the the elite of society, whether he's going to go on being one of the good old boys, 
or whether he's going to speak up and do the right thing. And in the, I have a little postcard that, what do you call it, flyer that says, yep. Salt and Stall's Trial, 1692, Rich Witchcraft, a story of courage, love, and family. So now I understand why it says that, because this is primarily about the challenges for Salt and Stall and his family. Yes. And what they have to go through. Exactly. Is there a dialogue between the, the, the wife and the husband and the kids, like, Yes. Daddy, why are you doing this kind of stuff? There's a lot of it. His father-in-law was Reverend John Ward of Haverhill, who was very famous up there. Um, uh, in fact, a lot of places are named after him uh, up there, streets in Ward Hill and so forth. Um, John Ward was a very popular minister. Uh, he had been the minister there for about 50 years. And he plays a part in this as, uh, his, as Nathaniel's conscience. And by the way, uh, Christopher Lydon... Uh, is playing Reverend Ward. Wow. Yes. <laughs> good, it's good time for us to break, and then we'll finish up after this on WBZ. Here's the real Bradley J saying what he wants to say. Speak! Jay talking with Bradley J. Why don't you just go and sit down and listen? WBZ News Radio 1030. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you put the radio on? Sure. I'm coming up to talk. He wants to talk. Let's see what he has to say. Let's turn into a radio show. It's a beautiful night. Oh, what a night. I love this place at night. Jay talking with Bradley Jay. There's no wrong in him. WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ. Always looking for something good to do, something new, something something local, but something exciting. And we've got it here. At Sultan Stoltz Trial. This is 1692 Witchcraft, a story of courage and love and family. There was this judge, a country judge named Sultan Stahl, who held out against the tide that was uh, the tendency to convict these people of being witches and about all that the family had to go through. Of course, there's the whole backdrop of the witchcraft and all. What would some of, some of the challenges you ran into, you know, to, to get across what you needed to get across in the in the meat in the form of a play, in the format of theater. Like you wanted to make people feel the witch scare. How, I mean, how do you go about that? Good acting. We have some fantastic actors. And uh, we tried to recreate some of the drama that took actually did take place in the trials, meaning the uh, um, uh, the 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 accusations of spectral evidence that are taking place. Uh, we we try to get across how the judges treated the defendants. Um, there's a scene, by the way, uh, in the jail, in the Salem jail, which was infamous for being just the, the most disgusting, filthy uh, dungeon you can think of. Uh, and one of the scenes takes place there, and we get across what was going on. In fact, um, there is a girl who was five years old who was jailed along with her mother in that same filthy pit in the in the uh, basement of a building in Salem. Um, 
and she went mad. Her name was Dorothy Good. She was the daughter of Sarah Good. Um, we put all that out. The play is not for the you know for, for the younger crowd. It's really for maybe twelve years old and up because there's some really really disturbing scenes. Except for Giles Corey, was that his name? Every, Giles everyone, Corey. Everyone's a woman. That, that can't be. A not everybody was a woman, but a most of them were. Most Why did they pick on women? Because women were easier to pick on? Yeah, exactly. W women were considered to be um, more vulnerable to the devil's uh, temptations. They were hysterical. They were, uh, they were considered to have fewer morals. Right. They were considered to be easily tempted by the devil. Yeah. And the other reason was that a lot of these women were unpopular women. Uh, if you were outspoken, if you were somebody who sassed people or argued with your neighbors, and you were a woman, you were a prime. You were going to be a prime suspect. So this is something you may have run into, or thought of, or maybe not. But as far as women being considered hysterical, histor historically hysterical. Of course, you know what it's called when you remove the uterus, a hysterectomy. Yes. That, that's not an accident. Right. That is, right. That, that's. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the, those, those two terms are. Uh, and now I need to figure out in 60 seconds why out of all the things that you could have done a play on, you chose this. This is pretty esoteric stuff. I mean, this family, it's really great. But how did you focus on this to the. To the point where you were willing to spend all this time on it. I'm fascinated, always have been fascinated with little guys who do great things. I've always said that greatness comes in a variety of sizes. And uh, it's not just the great people you hear about in the media and so forth. It's the small people who take a stand. And Nathaniel Saltonstall took a stand, put himself in jeopardy. And uh, but did the right thing nevertheless, and I always like a story about. Real that. briefly, were there any negative impacts and consequences for him for for bowing out to get in trouble? Oh yeah, his uh, his his. What happened is he was ostracized, I believe, by his brethren, the people who had you know been appointed judges and so on and so forth. So his career actually suffered afterwards. He missed appointments that he should have uh, been appointed on and things of that nature. He also took up drinking. And by the way, he was, a, he was um, accused of witchcraft himself as a result of this. Great stuff. Sultan Stahl's trial, written by our guest, Michael Cormier, along with uh, Miriam Sear. She helped write it. She helped me write it. Yes, Tweak she it. did. Yep. So what I'm going to do is hang on to this. And all night long and, and beyond that, I'm going to remind people when it is is at the Larkham Theater in Beverly, Massachusetts, October 17 to 27. This is a, a real local phenomena, uh, phenomenon and something that I think you'd like to experience. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to come here. Thank you very much. WBZ. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.